share the story of the union garbage garbage worker labor struggle that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was helping lead the day before his death. As a reminder, the organizing labor in America is dangerous, and we must not forget those who led this movement, who bravely risked their lives and their livelihoods in this struggle. On the 1st of February, 1968, two Memphis garbage collectors Etchell Cole and Robert Walker were crushed to death by a malfunctioning truck. Eleven days later, frustrated by the city's response to the latest event in a long pattern of neglect and abuse of its black employees, 1,300 men from Memphis Department of Public Works went on strike. The union had attempted a strike four years earlier, but failed in large part because they were unable to arouse the support of Memphis religious community leaders or the middle class. That month, the police used mace and tear gas against nonviolent demonstrators marching to City Hall. They asked for Dr. King to come and shore up the support. King arrived on the 18th of March to address a crowd of about 2,500, the largest indoor gathering the civil rights movement had ever seen. King encouraged the group to support the sanitation strike by going on a citywide work stoppage. King arrived on April 3rd after being warned of the danger of coming back to Memphis for the garbage strike. And he was persuaded by the garbage men to, per, to speak to a crowd dedicated to the sanitation worker strike, who had braved another storm to hear him. A weary king preached about his own mortality, telling the group, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Following the events of that speech, King was getting ready for dinner. He was shot and killed on the balcony of the Lorraine Mortel from the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. Thank you for that story. I think Labor Day gets lost in end of summer barbecues mostly, so it's yeah. good to be reminded of the history. I know. it's. I think like um, I didn't grow up with a lot of labor solidarity, and that's something I'm really learning about. It's a good thing. Um, <clears throat> does everyone know Nathan? This is Nathan Roberts. He is um, here to preach for Russell tonight. Uh, Russell is doing a wedding, so he wasn't able to be here. But we were so lucky to have Nathan. Nathan, 
was a member of House of Mercy for many, many years, and now has his own church. Yeah. Anything else about yourself that I should, I mean, a new father, sort of? Yeah, I uh, have a 14-month-old. Uh, hold your applause. <laughs> and uh, I also just wanted to say how grateful I am to be here. Um, without House of Mercy, I would not have been able to make the transition from um, evangelicalism of the 90s into um, something deeper and wider um, that has allowed me to be a, a minister. And a huge part of that has been um, uh, Pastor Debbie's ministry. So um, if we could just give her a round of applause for all the amazing years. And um, so this place has been a place to land for a long time. So We're grateful for you. Thank you. Hey, I have a couple announcements. Don't forget about Feast of Jonah coming up the last Sunday in September. It's uh, to mark the autumnal equinox and my last day at House of Mercy, so I hope you can all make it. Um, we have another announcement. We have a guest announcer who is going to make their way down here to make an announcement. <laughs> you know Nancy and Helena. Yes, uh, we couldn't prepare for Youngster Sunday next week, September 10th, without an announcement from a youngster. Um, but I also wanted to let folks know that we are kicking off the school year with a new curriculum for the younger youngsters. Uh, still be the same Bible story and activities, um, but this year focusing a little bit more on the life of Jesus and the stories he told, and a little bit less on all the interesting stuff in the Old Testament that I sometimes struggle to teach. Um, and that change in curriculum also opens up our uh, school year for some more of the creative expression activities that we've kind of done in the summer previously. Um, we have about one week a month where there's a chance to do some crafting or cooking or community-led movement music, uh, something for all the ages of youngsters and even adults uh, to participate in. So. More information about that and some signups will be here for Youngster Sunday next week. You can also check out the website, houseofmercy.org slash youngsters for that as soon as I get it up there. <laughs> Don't look now, it's not there yet, hopefully tonight. Um, we look forward to seeing everyone here next week to kick off the school year with our traditional spin on Rally Sunday. This is the House of Mercy. And welcome to it. In the great book of John, you're warned of the day when you'll be laid beneath the cold clay. The angel of death will come from the sky.
prayer of invocation. God of mercy, God of peace in all that is, we come here to give attention to our interdependence, our relationship to you and each other. Or maybe we just come to sit or sing. Whatever our desires, we pray that we will find something we need or that you will find us and show us love. Amen. The peace of Christ be with you. Let's share a sign of peace. Once I was dead, oh yes I died, and the good Lord said a prayer to open your eyes, surprise you.
prayers of community. I'll end each prayer or petition with God and your mercy, and I invite you to respond here our prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God who works, creates, and rests, we pray for a world where work is balanced with leisure, and every kind of labor is valued and respected, and can even be done with some measure of satisfaction, perhaps even pleasure. God, in your mercy. We pray for a world where the rich and powerful will recognize and honor and seek fair compensation for the laborers who paved the way for their prophets, often literally the roads and bridges. We pray for an end to greed and exploitation and the exaltation of profit-making at the expense of people's lives and the planet. May the migrant workers and farm laborers, and factory workers, and Best Buy salespeople, and musicians, and grocery store stockers, and teachers, and social workers be compensated fairly, enough to live and thrive. We pray for restaurant workers and nurses, and all those who will continue to face the brunt of COVID's rises and falls. We pray that workers' voices will be heard, that workers' movements will not be squashed, Help us recognize and respect and honor the contributions of laborers. God, in your mercy. 
God of mercy, although we are probably quite aware of it as fall comes, keep reminding us that things are always changing. The plants that are growing, the weather, what we feel, our bodies, our kids start to talk, go back to school, off to college, our parents die, we grow old, and it is all right. Change is sometimes delightful and often difficult, but help us welcome or make space or at least find some speck of grace for whatever arrives at our door. God in your mercy. God of mercy, help us not to be afraid to cry or afraid of other people's tears. Sometimes we find it difficult to express our emotions, to put it mildly. We aren't always really very comfortable with everything being human means. May we learn from you. You love humans and humanness. You make life and liveliness out of death and deathiness. May we follow you in your ways. God, in your mercy. We pray for those who mourn the death of someone they love, that they might find some happiness carrying their loves in their hearts and minds. We pray for those who need healing physically, emotionally, or spiritually. We pray for Tom, for John, for Brian, and for Bob. May there be light and life and comfort and healing. God, in your mercy. Hear us now as we offer our prayers and our confessions, our gratitude or our silence as we pause. Thank you for the mercy. Amen.
Tonight's uh, scripture reading comes from John 11, 17 to 50, in which Jesus and his disciples are spreading the revolutionary message of love and mutual liberation across the countryside when they hear that Jesus' dear friend Lazarus has fallen sick. And so Jesus and his friends and disciples travel to see Lazarus' family. Jesus arrived in Bethany and found that Lazarus had already been dead and in the tomb for four days. Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to see Martha and Mary. They came to comfort them about their brother Lazarus. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to greet him, but Mary stayed home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you anything you ask. Jesus said, your brother will rise and be alive again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise to live again at the time of the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life Everyone who believes in me will have life, even if they die. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. Martha, do you believe this? Martha answered, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You are the one who is coming to the world. After Martha had said these things, she went back to her sister Mary. She talked to Mary alone and said, the teacher's here. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she stood up and went quickly to Jesus. He had not yet come into the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews, who were in the house comforting Mary, saw her get up and leave quickly. They thought she was going to the tomb to cry there. So they followed her. Mary went to the place where Jesus was. When she saw him, she bowed at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw Mary crying, When Jesus saw Mary crying, and the people with her crying too, he was very upset and deeply touched. He asked, where did you put him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus cried. And the Jews said, look, he loves Lazarus so much. But some of them said, ah, Jesus healed the eyes of the blind man. Why didn't he help Lazarus and stop him from dying? Again, very upset, Jesus came to the tomb. 
It was a cave with a large stone covering the entrance. He said, move the stone away. Martha said, but Lord, it's been four days since Lazarus died. There'll be a tremendous stink. Martha was the sister of the dead man. Then Jesus said to her, remember what I told you? I said that if you believed, you would see God's divine greatness. So they moved the stone away from the entrance. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said these things because of the people here around me. I want them to believe that you sent me. And Jesus said this, and after Jesus said this, he called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with pieces of cloth. He had a handkerchief covering his face. Jesus said to the people, take off the grave clothes and let him go. There were many Jews who came to visit Mary. When they saw what Jesus did, many of them believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them, told them what Jesus did. Then the leading priests of the Pharisees called a meeting of the high council. They said, what shall we do? This man is doing many miraculous signs. If we let him continue doing these things, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. One of the men there was Caiaphas. He was the high priest that year. He said, you people know nothing. It is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. But you don't realize this. Word of the Lord. Thank you so much for that reading. Okay, today I want to talk about crying. Who likes talking about crying? Now, I do know, having been a lifelong upper Midwesterner, that talking about crying in public is a deeply controversial topic, especially among men. Now, my therapist, who are my people who have therapists? Raise your hand. Just, you can raise them like this if you don't want anyone to know. Okay, I see you. Um, okay, my therapist says that crying is nothing to be ashamed of, right? That it's just like sweating, but with emotions. Um, and while that may be anatomically true, that's not culturally true, right? Because people in Minnesota don't really care that much if you're sweating in the summer. But if you're crying in the summer, people are like going to ask you about it especially if you're a man. Now, I don't want to lean too heavy into the binary, but crying really is something that I think weighs heavily upon the way men are raised, especially men who are raised in the 90s. Who are my people who are raised in the 90s? Oh, yeah, one guy. I assume that people, men didn't cry in the 80s. Did men cry in the 80s a lot? No, not that much. 
Um, okay, good. Um, so I want to like break down the stigma about crying for this group. And this is a really good size group to talk about crying with. So by show of hands, who is comfortable crying in public? Like you're watching a movie in the theater, you're at a public park, you see a cute baby, and when you feel the tears start coming up, you're just going to let them roll. Okay, raise your hand. All right, all right, nice. Healthy people. All right, you were raised right. All right, this is not me. Okay, who's comfortable crying with close friends and family? Like you're on the couch and you're watching a sad movie and the people are about to get together in the rom-com or it's a, it's a documentary and the world's going to end for another reason and you're at home or you're talking to a friend or it's a big life moment. Then you feel like you can cry. Okay, raise your hand. Okay. Now, I'm trying to be this confident of a crier. This is my aspirational crying level. Okay, but who are the people that will actively hold in tears with every ounce of their strength? Raise your hand. Good, that was a trick question. Someone like that would never raise their hand. <laughs> Just kidding, I did see one hand. Um, okay, so this was me for the vast majority of my life. And this is what had been role modeled to me by a long line of Irish Catholic alcoholics. But I wasn't always this way, right? When I was a baby, I cried a lot. Who had a fussy baby? Anybody have a fussy baby? Okay. I cried a lot, right? And I cried so much that the only thing that would stop me from crying was being fed. So my mom would breastfeed me and then I would go to bed and then I would wake up crying and my dad would bottle feed me again. And then I would throw up that and my parents were so tired of my crying that they didn't talk to each other. And then my mom would walk into there when I was crying and see that I had thrown up the breast milk, which was actually the formula. And then she would feed me again. I would throw up. Then my dad would go in there and think I was throwing up. So this cycle continued for two weeks. And they never talked to each other. Because they were just like, we have to stop the crying. So I go into the doctor and they're like, doctor, he can't keep anything down. And he's like, that's crazy because this, beef, this baby is almost obese. And they're like, what do you mean? And they were like, well, yeah, this baby's like twice the size it should be. And then they looked at each other and they just like knew what had happened, but they never like told the doctor. And they just were like, okay, we'll go home and figure it out. Right? And that's kind of how my childhood went. Right? So I continued to cry throughout my childhood. I cried at The Little Mermaid until I had to be escorted out of the film. I cried at Little Women when I was uh, folding the laundry with my mom. And I cried at The Brave Little Toaster a lot. Although I contest that that movie is way too mature for young audiences. I cried when I got dropped off at daycare for the first time. I cried so much I got kicked out of three daycares. Because not only was I crying so much that it was making the the daycare provider crazy, but it was starting a wave of other kids crying because it was so upsetting to the rest of the kids. So my mom was coming and picking me up midday and she's like, you gotta stop crying, buddy. Pull it together, you know? And finally, I got stuck with this church mom who, bless her heart, I don't think she wanted to be a daycare provider. And she didn't care if I cried. <laughs> 
And then I started looking around, and I realized that none of the other boys were crying, and that none of the other men were crying in the 90s. And on TV, when the characters who were boys like me got hurt, they weren't crying either. And somewhere along the way, I realized that crying was not an appropriate response to life. That is not true, by the way, but we're going to get there in the future of this talk. But that's what I learned as a child. And I had to shut it down, right? And so I bottled it up with a protective shell of around my body and around my heart, right? Had, did anyone learn this when they were a kid, to do this, to protect yourself, to just shut it down, right? And so instead of crying, I developed chronic back pain, chronic neck pain, high blood pressure, sour stomachs. But I will tell you, I never cried. That wasn't until last year when I had a baby. Not me literally, like, I didn't contribute a lot, honestly, to the laboring process. I'm going to be very honest about that. I fainted two hours into it, into a 20-hour labor, and I was escorted out of the delivery room, and I just paced for the next 16 hours. But we were barely out of a pandemic, and last summer we had our child Frankie. So after long nights, little sleep, diapers, I was barely managing to keep my tears back. They were right behind my eyes, right? Have you ever had that when it's right behind your eyes? And you're like, I can't cry in this specific location, right? Except for that was every location for me. But then there was a medical emergency in our family and my back was just wrenched. I was just like, I couldn't even lay down. I was just wrenched, right? Trying to balance all the stress. So I went to a chiropractor and he like cracked my back and it didn't do anything. And he was like, mm, maybe too much stress. And then handed me an exorbitant bill. And I was like, cool, thank you, sir. But finally, my mom made an appointment with a massage energy worker. Has anyone been to an energy worker before? Show of hands, raise your hand. Have you ever done that before? Okay, so we're gonna go on a journey together right now. I was very suspicious, right? What about this energy work thing? Like I was very, that's not, my, that's not my speed, right? So I get in there and she puts her hands on my back, right? And she's like, wow, I can feel on your back that your life has been very difficult. And I, and, and I told her a little about what was happening. And then she said something that was revolutionary. She said, why don't you let your guard down and let some of those feelings out? And they really came out. <laughs> I cried for an hour, just sobbing. Just earth-shattering tears. Right? Just like pulling on my face tears. Has anyone ever like cried where you're like pulling on your skin? Because you're just trying to like pop your tears like a zit and you're just like, get it out of me, right? <laughs> like, but I will tell you, after an hour of that, I left and my back did not hurt. <laughs> it was wild. She barely touched me. That day I left and I felt like I was born again. I was a new person. 
my life was still pretty bad and I was pretty stressed and I did have to go back to her a lot more times. But the power of breaking open in tears was revolutionary to me. I had never seen any man do that before. So now we're going to go back 2,000 years, right? And Jesus is knee-deep in the Jordan River preaching. And he's just outside the capital city of Jerusalem, the capital city where an authoritarian government has colluded with corrupt religious leaders, and they are plotting a very specific assassination attempt on him. Like, they're going to kill him for sure. And it was a very dark time in Jesus' life. Jesus knew that King Herod and high priest Caiaphas were making plans to assassinate him. And like it reads in the scriptures today, Caiaphas had said, it is better to kill one man than to have the Romans turn on us and lose the nation. Which is very similar to the way a lot of people were feeling about Dr. King in 1968. But despite the pressure and danger, Jesus was still out in the open doing this work. Only a couple miles away from where they're plotting his assassination. He's knee-deep in the river, spreading the revolutionary message of love and mutual liberation. He's talking to farmers and day laborers, fishermen and sex workers, children and babies. And he's preaching, and he's helping people, and he's healing and I'm sure he's feeling the weight of just the work that he's doing and also that he's just out in the open when people want to murder him, right? Those are toxic working conditions as long as it's Labor Day and we're talking about it. And then someone comes up to him and says this heartbreaking message, your friend Lazarus is very sick. But Jesus stays two more days to finish up and help everybody. Knee deep in the river, he is working with people that the country had utterly disregarded. Just like those sanitation workers in Memphis. And when Jesus goes up, he visits his friend Lazarus' hometown, which is two miles away, and Mary and Martha are upset with him that he has been helping randos. Do you guys have randos? Do you guys know what that is? We talk about that all the time. Right? When you throw a party and you're like, no randos. Just random people, right? Okay, Jesus helps randos, right? And we all do. But then when your friends are like, why aren't you helping us? Someone is sick at our house. Your friend, why are you not prioritizing the close people in your life? And Mary and Martha are understandably angry about this. You've let my brother die because you care about other people more than you care about your friends. And this just lands on Jesus like a ton of bricks. I'm sure it was the assassination attempt and the work and the heat and his friend dying and now his other friends are mad at him, but he just breaks down under all of it and just starts crying. And the translators who I assume are men are so shocked by this that they just make it one verse. They're just like, Jesus cried, mic drop. Like, that's crazy, right? He literally cried. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus cried, you know? Jesus was a crybaby. 
was probably what somebody said to him. Because for me, when you are following the kingdom of God, you are grieving on a lot of levels at all time, especially at the end of an empire. You're grieving the rise of authoritarianism. You're grieving the fact that Christian leaders are just like fanning the flames of authoritarianism. I'm grieving that I can't go outside because the air is poison now, plus I'm allergic to trees, and so I get a headache if I go outside for more than like 10 minutes when the AQI is more than 50. Who are my like stay indoor with bad AQI people? Yeah, summer is ruined for us, right? And then we see our neighbors getting broker and sicker. Every time we go on Facebook, there's another like cause for somebody who needs a hundred thousand dollars for medical bills, right? There's a tent encampment by my house in South Minneapolis that was just torn down and the police and city leaders don't even bother to tell them where to go anymore. They don't even make up excuses anymore. They're just like, you gotta leave. And they're like, where should we go? They're like, we really don't care, right? And then on top of this societal collapse, we have our own problems in our own homes, which is enough that humans should have to deal with, right? Grocery prices, we got kids struggling at school, we got bills, we have people who are sick and hurting and we're trying to care for them. Who is caretaking right now? Who is doing some serious caretaking? Are the people who are doing caretaking right now? The weight of that alone is enough. And at these moments, I wanna give you permission to just let it go. To just let our bodies be grieving or angry and I hope you can find a place that you feel safe enough to let it out. Because it needs to come out. Because if we don't let it out, it will kill us. It will kill us. Or we'll numb it. And I come from a long line of Irish Catholics who know a thing or two about numbing the pain. Or worse, it'll harden our hearts and we'll stop caring, and we'll stop trying. Now, this is not easy. I am still learning to cry. I'm still trying to find small ways to let my grief out, to let myself tear up a little bit when I see that it's, the AQI is too bad that I can't go outside with my son and play at the park today, to let myself tear up a little bit when I'm watching a documentary or one of those nature shows and it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful. And then at the end they go, but climate change. And I'm just like, God, it's always but climate change at these shows. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you're watching those nature documentaries and they go, but all the birds are dead now. And you're like, oh, this is terrible, man. That's not what I wanted to hear. That's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm watching this bird show. I try to let the tears come. I was at the river this week with on my way to visit the energy worker who makes me cry for hours. And as I was going out there, my body is getting so ready to cry that I'm starting to cry on the way out there. And uh, I get a, like a loaf of bread and a piece of cheese. And I'm just like, all right, you know what? I'm going to perk myself up. I'm going to go sit by the river and just be better. Does anybody have those like micro plans to just like be better? <laughs> And you're like, I'm going to have dinner and then I'm going to be better. <laughs> and you're like, so I get a, 
hunk of, uh, like a loaf of bread, like a long French bread <laughs> loaf and like a piece of cheese. And I sit down at the park. It's like so beautiful. Like it's like the river by um, Stillwater is just like going and I'm just like looking at it. And I sit down and I immediately just start sobbing, right? And I'm like, I'm trying to be happy. And the feelings are just coming. And like I told my therapist about that the next day and I was like, man, I'm really a wreck. And she's like, you know, that actually sounds kind of healthy. Just to let it out, you know, when you're at the park. And I was like, I really do not understand crying. (laughs) But I just want you to take some time this week. My hope for you, what I want to leave with you today, is that I hope that you can check in with your body this week. And see if you're holding grief in. Like, just take a moment to feel your body and to see if there is some grief just in there, just stuck in there because our hearts are clenched, your shoulders are clenched. Are you able to breathe deeply? I mean, when was the last time you cried? And didn't feel embarrassed at all. Because I always feel embarrassed. When was the last time you cried without saying sorry for being emotional? Because one of the miracles of life I'm learning is that our tears can actually help us heal. I hope you know what I'm talking about these moments when you experience the deep healing power of a good cry, especially in the presence of someone you love. And after you cry, you feel like you might have the energy to keep going. Because Jesus' tears helped him say the words, Lazarus, take off your grave clothes and come back to life. Our tears can also call others into mutual aid and build solidarity. Movements have been built from broken hearts and tears, and people have even been raised from the dead with broken hearts and a good cry. Amen.